This is Sit Rap on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Does the UK need a full-time national security advisor? Taliban talks. Will the agreement hold water? How long does it take to train a pilot? Too long, apparently. And the Iranian tanker, where is it now? And why the Americans tried to buy off the captain? Right in the middle of the blistering back and forth of front bench warfare yesterday, up popped the chair of the Commons Defence Committee. What Britain needs, Brexit or no Brexit, is a national security adviser. It's hardly likely, however, that the Cabinet Secretary will come before the Defence Committee. So wouldn't it make sense as soon as possible to have a full-time occupant of the post of National Security Advisor so select committees and the NSC itself can do our jobs properly? Well, that was Dr Julian Lewis who joins us now from Westminster. Dr Lewis, good to speak to you. Why does Britain need a National Security Advisor? Well, Britain set up the National Security Council and the idea was that this would be a body which would bring together a raft of relevant departments when issues arose of a security nature that crossed beyond the boundaries of just the Ministry of Defence. So naturally they had a staff of officials and the head of those officials was the National Security Advisor who uh, was uh, one uh, Sir Mark Sedwell who did that role in a full-time way until he was appointed Cabinet Secretary a few months ago. Um, Much to everyone's surprise, however, a vacancy was not then created as National Security Advisor for somebody else to take over. And at first we thought it was perhaps a temporary measure. There was even a a rumour that uh, Sir Mark was holding that post available for a close colleague who had up till then been leading the Brexit negotiations with Europe. But whatever the reason was, uh, the post has not been separated from that of Cabinet Secretary, which leads to the sort of situation that I described on the floor of the House yesterday. And you say you need one so select committees like yours can do their jobs properly. In what way can't you do your job properly? Well, quite simply, because when we want to investigate something, such as the hearing we're hoping to have on Monday afternoon, to look into how it was a British flagged tanker came to be seized by the Iranians, despite the fact that such retaliation was entirely predictable and was actually predicted at the time, then um, the uh, question was, uh, who is going to be able to give us the most informed evidence from across departmental boundaries? The obvious person to do that would be uh, somebody from the National Security Council. Now, they may say, OK, we'll send a deputy or somebody like that. But uh, it, it does just highlight the fact that this was deemed to be a full-time specialist role. The Cabinet Secretary is at the heart of absolutely everything that goes on in the government. So it's an absurdity to say that you've got a National Security Council with the person at the top being somebody who has 101 other things to do. Mm, So why do you think that this post has not been filled full time? 
I'd like to think it's just that the government hasn't got round to it because I don't know to what extent when the decision was taken to allow Sir Mark Sedwell to become Cabinet Secretary without relinquishing the role of National Security Advisor, I don't know to what extent this was meant to be a temporary or permanent arrangement. And I thought, therefore, that, uh, you know, it would be useful to try and tease something out on the floor of the House. Um, in fact, all the Prime Minister said was that this was something his predecessor had arranged, which my reply was, well, uh, I, I hope he isn't going to follow perhaps every policy followed by his predecessor, because Otherwise, uh, the implication was, of course, that it wouldn't have been necessary to change prime ministers. So if, if this drags on and the post is not filled full time for some time, what, what do you think the potential consequences will be? Well, I think it's just a, a, a lessening of the rational decision-making system that we need. I mean, let's put it this way. There is an argument to be said that there are too many security bureaucrats already and that the uniformed military do not occupy a sufficiently central role in strategy devising and policy-making uh, as they ought to have. Is that, is that an argument what, you would make, Julian? Yes, yes, it is, actually. It, it's an argument I have made. I, I actually believe that the chiefs of staff committee as a whole ought to have a much more central role in the formulation of strategy. Uh, and more and more, this has passed into the hands of what one might term the security bureaucrats. But nevertheless, we've got this NSC. Uh, it's been deemed necessary to set it up. Uh, its responsibilities are very serious and important. Uh, and there has been no debate nor explanation as to why the top position in the organisation uh, has not been vacated when the person who occupied it went on to hold a very demanding, indeed the most demanding, se senior civil service position in existence, namely Cabinet Secretary. Mm, you, you mentioned security bureaucrats. Should we beware mm -hmm. of the American example, you know, 14 intelligence agencies, each with a different view of the world? <laughs> yes, well, I, I won't get into the the discussion of, of, of the intelligence apparatus. What I would say is this, and I've used this example many times before, and it's sufficiently distant to be not too controversial now. The fact is that it used to be the case that if you were the head of the Army, the Royal Navy or the Royal Air Force, you had a central role in strategy making. And uh, with the coming of the Chief of the Defence Staff, one of the adverse effects of it, there no doubt were many good effects of it, but one of the adverse effects of it is that the heads of the single services have been somewhat sidelined in that respect. Now, if you go back to the Libya campaign, there was allegedly this notorious confrontation when the Chief of the Defence Staff, Lord Richards, as mm. he now is, mm. said to the Prime Minister David Cameron that what you're proposing to do, Prime Minister, in overthrowing Gaddafi uh, is not in uh, Britain's strategic interest, to which the answer came, you do the fighting and I'll do the politics or whatever mm. it was. Now, it is much easier 
for a prime minister with a bee in his or her bonnet to brush aside the views of a single military advisor than it is to brush aside the views of the chiefs of staff sitting together. So it's about and power think, then, is it? Uh, well, I think it's about the sidelining from str- strategy making of the heads of the armed mm. services. And I think that's a mistake. Well, just, just while you're here, Dr Lewis, um, the Chancellor announced that in his spending review mm-hmm. this week that no department will have a cut in its budget this year. In mm-hmm. fact, uh, confirming two 2.2 billion for the MOD mm-hmm. over a two-year period. 1.2 mm-hmm. billion said to be new funding. Is it new funding? Um, some of it does appear to be new funding, and we got our, our number cruncher on the Defence Committee to look at this straight away and to ask what does it actually mean in terms of percentage of GDP. And as you may remember, we believe that we're actually spending 1.8% of GDP on defence on the basis on which we used to calculate it, but now we include other things like like war pensions Mm -hmm. and so on. It scrapes in at 2.1%. So uh, as a rough guide, we believe that it adds (laughs) 0.1%. So on the old calculation, it comes in now at 1.9%, and on the new calculation, it comes in at 2.2%. As you know, the Defence Committee's view is that we ought to have a medium-term target of 3% of GDP. So, still not enough then, Julian? Definitely not. All right, Dr Julian Lewis, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you very much for your time today. Now, one continually increasing defence expenditure is the UK's contribution to the coalition operation in Afghanistan. There's been some hope that an agreement between the official Taliban representatives in Doha and the United States could be translated into a peace treaty for all parties in Afghanistan itself. But will it? Well, Christina Lamb is Chief Foreign Correspondent for the Sunday Times. Christina, good to speak to you today. The apparent agreement between Taliban and US negotiators, does it hold water? Well, it depends what you're trying to get from it. Um, In terms of the US wanting to pull their troops out of Afghanistan after their longest war, 18 years in Afghanistan, um, yes, that's what they're getting. But in terms of whether this leads to actually peace in Afghanistan, I think it's it's very um, difficult to say and probably quite unlikely, frankly, because all this is is an agreement between the Taliban and the United States. It's not between the Taliban and the Afghan government. Yes, and almost to prove so, the style seems to be shake hands and then bomb Kabul. Yes, I mean, we've seen a series of really violent bombings in recent weeks. Now, whether that's, you know, the Taliban trying to show their hand or... Um, or whether it's, you know, some people think that there are people within the Taliban on the ground who don't agree with the peace deal. After all, they, up until quite recently, the whole Taliban strategy was to fight for a military victory and they would, they believe they were doing well on the ground. So um, there are, you know, many that think they don't need to actually make this agreement. But, I, you know, my, I think they're getting what they want, which is they want the foreign troops to leave and they're not having to give up very much for that. Our defence analyst Christopher Lee is listening to this, uh, Christina. Christopher, do you think any progress is really being made here? Well, there's a progress in one form, and that is from what partly what Washington would like, but it, what we shouldn't get uh, excited about is that when there is an agreement with Taliban and with American negotiators. This is not a peace agreement that will spread across 
uh, Afghanistan. Historically, Afghanistan has been ruled, but but Christine, it's, it's, it's never been governed, has it? it? So one begins to think that peace, as we would accept it in, let's say, Western European terms, which is a dangerous thing, uh, peace in, is, is, is probably a, an illusion. Well, yeah, I mean, people say the central government never has had much power in, in the provinces, but I think my issue with this whole peace deal is it's just too narrow. All it is is the Taliban agreeing not to attack foreign troops as they leave. And, you know, in, for the Taliban, that's a victory. They wanted the foreign troops to go. Um, what happens after that is supposed to be that then the Taliban sit with the Afghan government to discuss forming a future government for Afghanistan. But I spoke to the chief negotiator of the Taliban in Qatar a couple of weeks ago, and they insist they don't recognize the Afghan government. They will not sit with them. He said most they would perhaps allow one or two representatives of the government in a delegation of 15, and then mm. he listed various warlords that he thought should be sitting in on the negotiations. So, 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 Christina, in that light, do you think then that it would be a mistake for American troops to leave any time soon? Well, I think that they haven't asked enough for the Taliban that you're seeing now. And people suddenly seem to be waking up to this. These talks, this is the ninth round of talks. They've been going on for some time. I guess perhaps people didn't realise that something serious was going to come but out do, of but it. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, Christina. Do you think they're not asking enough of the Taliban because they don't want to ask more of the Taliban? They just want a reason to resolve this in their eyes and be able to get out of Afghanistan with their heads held high? Well, I don't see how it's getting out with your heads held high. If you're getting out and then Afghanistan just collapses into civil war, then I think a lot of people would ask questions of what was the point of that. We sacrificed a lot of lives. A lot of people have been injured for life. A lot of money was spent. And a huge number of Afghans were killed. So what was the point if at the end we just say to Taliban, oh, well, okay, just don't attack us as we leave, and then you can pretty much take over? Tommy, um, who do you think that we should be looking at to find people who can make agreements? I mean, I mean, small agreements, perhaps. And then the bigger question, perhaps, is that who can guarantee any agreements that that that, that are come to? I just don't think that, that this agreement should have been so narrow. I think the Taliban, you know, initially went towards the. the question of peace talks the taliban were being asked to recognize the constitution which gives equal rights to men and women there was supposed to be involvement from the afghan side what you've ended up with is as i said it is purely uh, an you know a, a pact not to attack the troops to as they leave and with, for the taliban side also to act against terrorists so if al-qaeda or isis trying to take over the country but again you know you drill down on that and talk to the Taliban they don't accept that Al-Qaeda was behind 9-11 they don't accept that they're terrorists so um, from their point of view they're getting rid of the foreign troops and then you know they could pretty much march into Kabul it sounds like. Is, is that what you think may well happen Christina? You know, I guess what the Americans would say is that there are now 300,000 Afghan police security forces that have been built up and they should be able to defend their own country. But unfortunately, we have seen time after time in clashes with the Taliban, they have not been able to stand up. In fact, often they've run away. (laughs)
So it's, you know, it does feel like that it's been done without enough guarantees to the Afghan government. And you're seeing in recent days a whole number of American generals, ex-ambassadors from the U.S. saying, hang on a minute, we're just betraying the Afghan people. I mean, why isn't there some agreement that the Taliban don't attack Afghan troops as well? Why is it only foreign troops? Christina, you have a a long history and knowledge of Afghanistan. Um, Just on a personal level, how does this kind of situation, as you see at the moment, you you almost sound emotional about it. How frustrating do you find it? Well, it's frustrating because, I mean, first of all, look, everyone wants peace. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be some attempt to have peace negotiations. This war has been going on 18 years with foreign involvement, but 40 years if you go back to, you know, the civil war and, and the Russian occupation before. So most Afghans, a very young country, have only ever known war. So, of course, everybody wants this to be over. But it just seems to me that not enough is being asked of the Taliban in return and you know i would also wonder where the uk is on this because we were the second biggest partner to the us we lost lots of we lost you know 450 soldiers we spent a lot of money um we still have a thousand troops in afghanistan why are we not more vocal why are we not saying well hang on a minute what's going to happen to the afghan government what about the afghan women that we were apparently cared so much about some years ago All right, Christina, um, good to speak to you today. Thank you. We'll have to leave it there for now. Thank you for your time today. Christina Lamb from The Sunday Times. Still to come, tanker tracking in the Eastern Med and it's 80 years since the start of the Second World War. The US State Department has confirmed one of its officials offered millions of dollars in cash to the captain of an Iranian tanker to allow the seizure of the vessel. The captain of the Adran Daria 1 was contacted about sailing the ship to a port where the US could seize it. The ship, previously known as Grace 1, has been at the centre of a diplomatic row after it was detained by Royal Marines off the coast of Gibraltar in July. It was impounded for six weeks amid suspicions it was carrying crude oil to Syria in breach of EU sanctions. Uh, Christopher, You've been following this story closely and tracking the ship online. What kind of intelligence is there on its whereabouts and how it's been, that intelligence is being collected? It's not very difficult to find out. That's the first thing. Uh, big tankers are pretty obvious. They come out of formers, and when a ship leaves, what it has to do is to, uh, rather like a flight plan with an aeroplane, it has to say where its, its next stop is. And a lot of them come out and they say where we're going. You know, we give it, we give it, give it a logical place where they normally go because most ships like this go on a regular track. So what happens with this one, uh, as it was the Grace One, as it was then called, comes out and instead of turning right in loose terms to go up to the Suez Canal and through that way into the Mediterranean, it turns left and goes down towards the. Uh, the Horn of Africa, mm. and it says Mombasa for bunkers, which means their first stop is going to Mombasa to take on the sort of fuel that patrols the, patrols the vessel. And here we begin to see a pattern. What happens is that these ships are largely thought to be going to somewhere like Syria uh, to give illegal oil to Syria. Um, when there is also a company which operates about 12 small tankers and they operate in the Mediterranean. So a big tanker like this, and it is a big tanker, you could you could fuel the whole of Britain for, for, for two days. When it gets into the Mediterranean, uh, what's happening at the moment is that they are 
uh, sort of joining up with each other, and the smaller tanker takes on the fuel. So just to be clear then, this, this ship at the moment is it suspected to be off the coast of Syria, its GPS is off. And it's doing what? No, it's not. His GPS isn't off. Um, what happens? It's, it's got it's, a thing called. It's, things, it's got a thing like AIS, and it's 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 a thing which means that you can identify a ship uh, using a satellite or any uh, and other systems. Uh, all most ships have this sort of thing. So what it's doing, it is getting probably every hour is getting instructions from its new owner. Because when it ran into all the trouble of being arrested by 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 the British off Gibraltar. Uh, somebody came along and said, I'll buy the oil in that tanker. I won't buy, buy the tanker, I'll buy the oil. So somebody's trying to actually get their hands on the oil. So it's going up and down uh, or across and back between Crete and Cyprus. And every so often it will turn round and it's reduced to about running about three mm. knots. That's walking pace in order to save the fuel it's got on board that actually propels it until it can find some way of actually getting to one of these smaller tankers uh, to offload some of its fuel. Okay, so a report by the U.S. Department of the Treasury says Iranian re- the, Iran- the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps heads a network of, as you said, uh, more than a dozen vessels that's transported nearly 10 million barrels of crude oil. That's m- not much. Mainly to the Syrian re- regime. Uh, how might the U.S. try... This is going on throughout the world. It starts in North Korea. But how that's might how the North US... Korea gets its oil from China. The U.S. is clearly very worried about this, though. How might they try and disrupt it? They will not. They will not be able to disrupt it, other than sort of actually going on board the vessel. Then they'll only be able to take. And that's out the one. biggest risk, is it? Well, they'll only be able to take out one vessel. If you imagine what would happen if, say, the SEALs or some other uh, action group went on board, took the ship over, then what do they do with it? It's it's more than that. It is it is the Iranians desperate for money, desperate for money, which they get from the sale of the oil. And what the Americans are start starting to do in a very big way, a much bigger way than they were doing at the beginning of last week, for example, they are pinpointing the people who are actually operating this. And there are 11 people that are operating this, and they're going after their private mm-hmm. funds. That is, the, that is the form of sanctions that's going on at the moment. But the biggest target now will be the next vessel that comes out and the next group of smaller vessels, which are now uh, the three of them off, off Hammamet. And it's very off Tunisia, and it's very likely that this big ship is actually looking to come alongside, and they literally mm. do come alongside each other, and they put a, uh, they put hoses over the side, and they simply put some fuel into the smaller vessels. Keep on watching it, Christopher. We'll come back to this story. Nothing else to do. Stay with us. Now, a report from the National Audit Office says the MOD isn't meeting its targets for training aircrew. The NAO, which audits public bodies, says there is a shortfall of 125 personnel a year. Well, let's talk to aviation analyst Paul Beaver. Hello, Paul. Uh, what do you make of these figures? I think they're, they're really woeful. If you look at them, um, it's, it's a bit of a horror story. Um, uh, there are lots of interesting figures that come out. Um, but the most, I think, the, the worst one that comes out, it's 7.1 years from uh, joining the Royal Air Force to getting into a front, uh, a fast, line, um, fast jet frontline aircraft. Um, instead of uh, about 3.7. I mean, it's that sort of thing. And yet the MOD is still having to pay for the contract. So how, how, you, Sorry, go on, Paul. I was going to say, so what you've got here is a whole litany in the report of facts that, that we've all thought for some time were happening. Um, but it, it's, it's going to be something like 2023 before everything is in, is in a sort of a nominal condition that where it's working. And we're at a time when the Royal Air Force has recapitalised, the Royal Navy's got uh, new aircraft, the Army's getting new aircraft. They all need pilots. 
What's gone wrong? Um, I think two things have gone wrong. There have been lots of plans made and not many decisions taken. I think that if you look at this, there's a a feeling of, of, well, we'll pass it on to the next person. We can see there's a problem. Um, The original contract um, is, is in commercial terms, um, a, a very interesting one because it demonstrates that the civil sector, which controls flying training, the company called Ascent, which is a, a combination of companies, had much better lawyers uh, than the MOD did. So the contract still means that £514 million has been paid, even though the contract is not performing. So there are there are a number of issues there that need to be sorted out. And if we didn't have this this, this preoccupation with Brexit. This is the sort of thing the government should be uh, looking into. Mm, with, with concrete consequences. Have you any Indeed. idea how many squadrons are not operational? Well, it's not really the matter of squadrons not being operational. It doesn't quite work like that. But we do know that there is a huge shortage of of non-pilot aviators, the rear-end crew, the people who make uh, the aircraft actually fight and work. So you've got a real issue here um, with the P-8 coming into service because the Boeing who manufacture the aircraft are delivering on time. They, you know, Good old Boeing. They, they do what they say they're going to do. So the, the indicator to that is on the REF recruiting website, there is an advert saying, if you were a former Nimrod backender, in other words, <laughs> you were you were somebody that, that was working any of the tactical systems, and you're under 57, you can come back into the Air Force. Now, that is a, that's a huge problem. We're going to get the P-8 into service and not have sufficient people to keep it going. You could argue that one of the reasons that tornado came out of uh, out of services we didn't have enough whizzos um, the backseaters for that so you know it, it's a, it's a balance you know it, and it's a real problem and Sorry. Brief, briefly Paul in the meantime you've got 145 RAF students waiting on average 90 weeks to start training that's the yeah. figure in July I mean what do you do with them well, they're in holding. These, they are, they've got jobs to do. They, there are places they can go and help. But they've, these are people who've joined the Royal Air Force to fly. Many of them have done phase one. They're going to have to relearn as well. So there's, there's, there's an expenditure uh, on that as well. So if you look right. at it, the whole of it um, is really quite a damnable story. All right, Paul Beaver, good to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time today. Now, on Tuesday this week, it was the 80th anniversary of the start of the Second World War. Christopher, take us back eight decades and tell us how we got to that point. You go back further than that. You go back to the First World War, and it was the way that it was cleared up. Um, And it was the way that, for example, Germany came out uh, as, as not as badly off it came out and was able to get itself organised, etc., as, as as a military force, and it was the the idea that the French were able to take as much money out of Germany as they wanted to for repatriation. The Germans, the French, lost one and a half million people during that war, and so the tensions between in Europe were just as great. Also, there was no. Uh, there was no way in which everybody got themselves organised. 1936, March 1936, where the Germans uh, sort of took over a large part of, of, of the borders and then two years later took over Austria. Nobody knew how to stop this. And so what we're really saying, we got into the war because we had 10 years that we hadn't managed to understand what, we had, what we had happened in the First World War. 
Do you think we've learnt anything from history? Have we learnt how to get out of a war and plan beyond a conflict? All wars that we've been in, not just the British, but say the Western Allies have been in since World War II, every single war we have failed. We have probably, with the exception maybe of not the Korea, uh, North Korean War, we have failed, if you like, to win. We have lost. We have got out somehow. And we're talking about the Americans getting out of Afghanistan at the moment. It's just the latest example. Very few countries. Very few countries. No, we're talking about a, as, as a group. As you know, you could have a world war or or, or, or with uh, allies. I think that there is a there is an understanding that you can get into war so very very easily, and when you get into war and take other people with you, you get into the sort of war, the sort of conflict that you will never get out of that war and be able to say, well, who won? We have different concepts now. On a personal level, what was your father's experience of the outbreak of war? Oh, dear old Poppy, you really screwed up the whole thing. Um, his squadron, reconnaissance squadron, were actually on the war on on the on the border with what was then sort of Germany. And this is uh, this is in fact today, eighty years ago, and this thing came through that war had started. He thought it was part of the exercise brief. He didn't. He did. He did. And he said, OK, chaps, off to the nearest beer keller. Uh, we think this is the end of the day. And of course, it was the end of quite a few of them because they got some of them got killed. But they thought it was part of uh, part of an exercise. I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. And if you joined us halfway through, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode? I'm Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.